Today's passage is Acts 7 to 54 to 8, 8. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Jesus, this is one of those passages that everything changes. Life as we know it, history as we know it, revolves around this moment in time. The church, what we would have become, never looks the same again. And Jesus, we confess that we can read a passage like this and we can be confused, we can have questions, we can be in awe of it, we could despise it. But Lord, I ask, Holy Spirit, as you are already here, would you continue to be so in our presence? Would you remove us from the distractions and the things that would keep us from seeing you reveal Jesus to us today? And Lord, through this passage, would you speak to us mightily? Would you speak to us in the dark and dreary places where there is no hope? Would you speak to us in the hard and stubborn places where we have pushed aside hope? Or would you speak to us us in new and clear and unexpected ways? But Jesus, would you speak to us? We've come here to meet with you. Would you meet with us now through your word and through your spirit? We ask and pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So one final time. Good morning. Yes. Friends, I don't know if you were paying attention to what this passage actually has to tell us. It's not that great of a passage. And here's what I mean. Today we're going to talk about a man being murdered. We're going to talk about the church facing persecution. We're going to talk about pain. Who likes pain? (laughs) Not really. Most of us don't. Most of us don't. But as we've been talking about over the last several months, we are looking through the book of Acts to see what the mission of the Spirit is. What is the Holy Spirit doing in God's people through the book of Acts, showing us what he is doing through God's people today? Because it's the same, believe it or not. And so today's point is really only one, broken down into two parts, and it's pretty simple. 
The mission of the Spirit is to show us that there is purpose to our pain. That's not an easy sentence. There is purpose to our pain. The purpose to our pain is this, to make Christ known. Is that a good purpose? We're going to find out. To make Christ known, but to who? To others and in us. So let's jump right into this. This passage, the first part of it that we read, is the tail end of a very long story in the book of Acts that starts all the way back in Acts chapter 6. And the highlight of it is a man named Stephen, who you saw a little bit about. Stephen is someone that Scripture teaches us is a man full of wisdom, full of faith, full of power of the Holy Spirit. He is one who goes about doing exactly what the apostles did, the leaders of the church. He teaches and he preaches and he does signs and wonders. This is a man who, in my explanation, is one to be reckoned with. He's a tour de force. He's someone that represents the best of us. And so he does what he does so well because he's full of the Holy Spirit. But he does what he does so well. He garners the intention of the enemies of the growing church. Literally, if you go back and read the uh, tail end of Acts 6 into Acts 7, all of these different groups of people come from throughout the region, and they put together a plan. This guy can't keep doing what he's doing. He's undermining us, right? We have talked about power from up, from up here before. They're undermining our power. So we need to do something about him. And so they argue with him, and they argue with him, and they debate him every opportunity that they get. But Stephen, true to his description in Scripture, does not lose. He doesn't. Every argument they throw his way, not only can he take it and rebuff it, but somehow still use it to show them Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that he gets to do. But he gets to a point where his enemies no longer can stand him, and they decide drastic measures are what needs to take place. And so they literally hire people who will lie about him. The Old Testament law they follow teaches them that the testimony of one is not good, but two or more makes it true. And so they literally just hire a bunch of people to lie about Stephen, to say that he's saying all of these slanderous things about their God and about their law. They set him up. And because of that, he gets dragged in front of the religious leaders. And he's put on trial. It's a kangaroo court, if you know what the phrase stands for. His ending, no matter what he actually had to say, was kind of determined for him. Because if you want to go back and read Acts 6, the people who put him on trial are the same people who hired the, the fools to lie about him. Think about that for a second. Could you imagine if you got called to court because you were being convicted of a crime and the very person who set you up for that crime was the judge? You're going to lose. There's no way out. And what we read this morning is, at least from their perspective, Stephen loses. He loses. Scripture talks about it as saying he fell asleep. One of the reasons the Bible talks about it like that is for something that Paul will talk about later in one of his other letters. Because for the Christian, we have hope that death is not the end. And so it talks about it in the sense that he fell asleep. But friends, don't let that language catch you off guard. They killed him. It's murder. The term we usually use is martyred because he died for his faith. Is this something we should have seen coming? Yes, actually. In verses 54 and 57, it says that they act like toddlers. Anybody ever had the privilege and opportunity of raising a toddler? <laughs> My youngest daughter turns four next Sunday. So when they say they stop their ears and they grumble and they walk away, I am very acquainted with that. 
I'll ask her to do something, she'll go, no, and I'll ask her to do something, and she'll go, no, and she'll literally just run away. And it's really, really kind of funny and really, really kind of sad that a bunch of grown men are doing the same thing. But they act like toddlers. Because if you go, ever go back and read Acts 7, Stephen not only takes the false accusations against him, he absolutely dismantles their argument. It's a, it's a work of wonder. It's one of my favorite passages to read in Scripture because he is so wise and he is so full of the Holy Spirit. Nothing they have to say against him is going to land because he's already taken care of all of it and then some. Which, again, leaves them with the only recourse that we see. They kill him. They murder him. Because of their fear, because of their hatred, because of their lust for power, they eventually turn violent. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we had talked about from this very stage, when confronted with God's truth, only two things happen. You either accept it or you turn violent against it. I don't know how many of you heard that phrase being said and thought it was a metaphor. A lot of times it is a metaphor. This passage shows us a lot of times it's not. It does turn violent. And friends, to be quite honest, it's disgusting. But is this something we should have seen coming? Unfortunately, all the way back in Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested for healing a man on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders try to reckon with them. They can't stand up to them, and so they get off with a warning. A chapter later, the 12 apostles are arrested, and this time they don't get off with just a warning. They get beaten. Do you see how it elevates? Do you see how more and more it's either God's truth or violence, in this instance, physical? And yes, emotional and mental. So by the time we get to the end of Acts 7, this has been boiling up inside of those who don't want to accept Jesus. This has been boiling up inside of them, and now it overflows in the most dastardly and destructive and devious and awful of ways. Friends, I want to make sure this point is clear before we move on. Depending on who you are and depending on how you grew up and depending on what you believe, a lot of people in the world have very different opinions about what makes a killing good or justified or not? Is murder ever okay? Is self-defense ever okay? Any of that kind of stuff. We're not going to talk about that here today. We're not. One, because it's not the point of the passage. But two, here's something I think that everybody can agree on. Whether you believe in self-defense, the death penalty, all that kind of stuff, no death is ever good. No death is ever good. Whether the means of that person dying was justified or not. Skip that facet for a second. No death is ever good. Death is the enemy. Romans tells us through the one man, through his sin, came death. Death is the product of sin. No death of a human being is ever good. It's not. Again, justified or not, we're not going to get into that. That's not for today. But no death is ever good. And we see that happen to Stephen. But does a death bring about good? It's a very different question to answer. And in this instance, God uses Stephen's death in a very powerful, powerful way. But before we get to that, I want you to think of this. The church, at this point, scatters. They scatter. That's what the tail end of Acts 7 tells us. They scatter. They flee for the hills. They go to all the different neighboring towns and regions, and they just leave. Why? Well, it makes sense. They're being persecuted. They're literally being hunted. Right? You saw that description at the beginning of Acts 8. Paul goes door to door. You a Christian? Yeah, come with me. 
He's literally just throwing people in jail left and right. They're being hunted. And so out of fear, they scatter. To our human sensibilities, that makes sense. Of course, their lives are on the line. They're going to run. But could you imagine the uncertainty? Could you imagine being somebody who's been following Jesus for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, and now this is what has happened? Could you imagine them remembering all the times the apostles taught them because Jesus taught them, if you want to follow after the Son of Man, you need to lay down your life, pick up your cross, and follow me. Well, now suddenly that's not a metaphor. Suddenly that's very real. It's very raw. It's very taxing. It's very life-consuming. They scatter. And the entire future of the church, the entire future of their individual lives and of their households is uncertain. Except for the apostles. I don't know if you caught that, but it says everyone scatters except the apostles. Could you believe it or not that the apostles have actually been here before? Not in this exact moment. Nobody's ever died yet for their faith in Jesus up till this point. But they've been here before. Right? Jesus tells them three different times the Gospels records for us that the Son of Man is going to die, be buried, and on the third day rise again. Jesus tells them ahead of time that Jesus is going to die, and then Jesus dies, and what do they do? They scatter. They've been here before. When Jesus finally resurrects and he comes back and he spends the 40 days on earth and he's teaching them, the last commandments that he gives them, one of them, we read in Acts 1.8, wait, coupled with the end of Luke, wait. So they've been here before. They've sat through those 10 days of uncertainty before. I have to believe that while the very church that is growing in the name of Jesus Christ is now freaking out, the 12 apostles go, we've been here before. We've been here before. We see how God has used great pain and great uncertainty to do the most marvelous and miraculous of things. And so they stay. They know that part of their responsibility is to lead the church. And the church right now is centered in Jerusalem. So they stay at its nexus. They stay at its hub. From there they will lead, but the church scatters. Could that possibly be a good thing? It turns out it can be. Friends, this is the question I want to ask that's going to make us understand the point of today's sermon. When life goes off the rails, what do we do? This isn't rhetorical. Honestly, ask yourself, what do we do? When the world stops making sense, what do we do? Because that's what happened to them. The world stopped making sense. The world literally fell apart around them. What do we do? I want to give you some encouragement that even though a lot of times when we're following Jesus and trying to listen and be faithful to the Holy Spirit, a lot of times it doesn't seem to make sense. But just because it doesn't make sense does not mean that it is nonsense. There's a very, very distinct difference. What do we do? The purpose to our pain is to make Christ known to others and in us. Stephen holds on to this in the face of tragedy and injustice. Did you know that Stephen's death is basically a mirror of the death of Jesus? They die in almost virtually the same ways. And if you don't believe me, I'll show you. Leaders acting irrationally happen to both Jesus and Stephen. They're both taken out of the city, and they are given very brutal, brutal deaths. I don't need to go into detail this morning, but if you don't know how absolutely awful it is to either die by crucifixion or to die by stoning, 
Five minutes on Google will let you know these are horrible ways to die. They both pray to Jesus, so they pray to God, commit my spirit. In the midst of their lives being taken to them, the very focus that they're looking for has nothing to do with their own lives. Jesus, I commit my spirit to you. Even now, in the most awful of circumstances, I trust you. Okay. They pray for forgiveness. Did you catch that? Stephen's being stoned to death, and he says to God, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Do not hold this sin against them. What? Like, I don't know about you, but I was taught to teach the Bible that, uh, I was taught to read the Bible that you really immerse yourself in the story. Put yourself in Stephen's shoes. Is praying for forgiveness for the enemies that are literally killing you in the here and now the very thing that would probably come to your mind? Nah. Maybe for the best of us. But for most of us, we're going, why? Ow. <laughs> Please stop. Help me get out of this. Jesus, take it away. And that makes sense. And yet Stephen is so like Jesus. He prays the same thing Jesus, Jesus did when he died. How? How? Hold on. But what does this death accomplish? Right? I, I, I brought up the question earlier. Does, is a death ever good? No. But can good come out of a death? Yes. It took Jesus' death to save us. Right? We know that. We talk about it every Sunday. It took the blood of the lamb to cover and pay for our sins. It took the blood of the lamb to restore that relationship between God and man. It took the blood of the lamb to conquer sin and Satan and death. Jesus' death won us everything. The most horrible of things is at the very center of our faith. So yes, our Bible very much teaches us that while a death, while a death is never good, there can be good that comes out of a death. When Jesus dies, he brings the Holy Spirit. He makes that way. That's what he teaches us in John. So he births the church. And now Stephen, when he dies, the church now grows. Here's a really cool um, kind of a God-wink moment. I don't know if you think God has a sense of humor, but he does. He really does. And so here's one of the ways that I can show you that God has a sense of humor. When you open up your Bible and you read it, you see that a lot of times there are chapter numbers and verse numbers. I'm assuming you've seen that before. That didn't just come out of nowhere, right? That's, that came from modern translators. As they translated it into different languages, they decided we need some kind of system of organization. And how they got the numbers and where they put it is a conversation for a different day, but it wasn't just random. There was a method to it. But isn't it ironic that so often, a lot of times, the verses that end up playing off of each other and connecting each other have some kind of numerical significance to each other, as if God knew, because God didn't know. And so, yes, how do I know that Stephen and his death and his life and what he did was going to grow the church? You ever remember how in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They had no idea how that was going to happen. But Acts 8.1 tells us the church scatters and they go to Judea and Samaria. Ooh, there's a little, God's like, I know what I'm doing. It's the same thing. All I got to do is flip the numbers. Go ahead and check me whenever we're done here. <laughs> but man, how can Stephen trust God in that moment? How can Stephen realize that 
The pain that he was experiencing, was, which was not just emotional turmoil, but very physical pain that then ended his life, how can he trust that God was going to do something for that and do something with that? Because he knew God. He knew him in a way that Jesus actually desires for all of us to know him. He had such a closeness and a oneness with our Savior that it changed him and changed him in ways that We'll get to it in a minute, but enable him to see that the pain that he was currently experiencing was not just some random act. It wasn't just because life sucks sometimes and because bad things happen to me. He knew that there was a purpose to this pain, and he trusted that God would use that pain in his life to make Christ known to others. The church is what it is today, friends. You have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because of Stephen. Think about that for a second. The church as it exists today is built on the back of the apostles and before them the prophets and the ancestors and whatnot. Stephen is included in that number. We sit here now or watch online now hearing this message that has changed and has lasted across time because of men like Stephen and because of women who were also like Stephen but were women. <laughs> I have no other way to say that, sorry. <laughs> Stephen knew the purpose to his pain was to make Christ known in others. But he's not the only one in this passage that does that. Philip does the same thing. The second part of our passage was the beginning of Acts 8. In the midst of fear and uncertainty, which we've talked about, the church is scattering. What are they going to do? What's my future look like? What am I going to do now? Acts 8 tells us he proclaims to them the Christ. Think about that. They're being religiously persecuted. A giant question mark that they didn't see coming now dominates their life. If you've ever gone through a season of intense confusion and turmoil and uncertainty, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Where something or someone can happen or enter into your life and all of a sudden, instead of your life having all these different parts to it, it seems like this one thing or this one person or this one situation now occupies the center of it and everything else revolves around it. And I don't mean that in a good sense. That's what happened to these people. And Philip knows the same thing that Stephen knows. There's purpose to the pain to make Christ known to others. How do I know that? He proclaims to them the Christ. If Philip doesn't go to Samaria, none of these things on the screen happen. The Samaritans don't hear the good news of Jesus. If you don't know anything about the Samaritans, go read John 4. That's where Jesus meets with the woman at the well. And the woman at the well says all that you need to know about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Who are you, a Jewish man? Have anything to do with me, a Samaritan woman? We don't mix. We don't talk. We don't interact. You see us as other, and we see you as other. There is no friendly territory here. The gospel would have never gone to the Samaritans unless the church scatters. The Jews and the other people who would eventually start following Jesus in Jerusalem would have never gone to Samaria. Never. And yet they went. Philip obeys. And the Samaritans, who just like everybody else, desperately need for them to hear the good news of Jesus, for the Christ to be proclaimed to them, receive that news. If Philip doesn't go to Samaria, the demonic isn't rebuked and cast out. And as we have talked about so often before, and as many of us have experienced already, there is a stark difference in our lives when the influence and the 
presence of evil is now kicked to the curb and banished to where it should always be. There is a light and a joy and a freedom and a hope that is found when evil is put back in its place under the foot of Jesus. And these people get to experience that. The sick and the broken would not find healing unless Philip goes to Samaria. Let me paint for you a picture here. Could you imagine if there was somebody on the other side of the world who is suffering from some uncurable disease. Doctors can't even identify what it is. And they pray and they pray and they pray every day. Jesus, would you heal me? Would you work a miracle in my life? And every day they pray, you have a dream when you go to sleep. Sell what you need to sell. Get on a plane ticket to some other part of the world. And go pray for that person. And you go, ah, mm, it's uncomfortable, I don't want that, mm, I, don't, I don't have the money, blah, 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 blah. Could you imagine if you were that person praying and you knew that God had so orchestrated and ordained somebody in his family to be the vessel of healing and power, full of the Holy Spirit, to come and change your life the way Jesus wants to, and they didn't. Could you imagine the anguish and the pain and the anger and the frustration you would feel knowing God was calling somebody to intervene in your life and they just wouldn't? Could you imagine all those people in Samaria, broken, desperate, crying out to a God they may or may not believe in, but desperate for something to change? And imagine Philip said, no, I won't go. That's heartbreaking to think about. But by God's grace and by his Holy Spirit, that's not the reality we read. We read that Philip knew there was a purpose to his pain, and so he goes and makes Christ known to those who so desperately need it. And now those people are in our family, and we see them one day in heaven, which I look forward to because I want to ask them what Philip looked like. And we're not going to belabor this point too much because we're going to talk about it next week, but Simon the Magician is mentioned very briefly in Acts 8. There's a whole story we're going to tear into next week. Simon the Magician is one who, as we've talked about here on this stage before, is one of the priests. It's one of the people who you would never think would believe in Jesus. They are so far removed that it is a waste of time and effort and prayers to seem to want to evangelize and minister to them and to love them like Jesus would. Simon the Magician is one of those. Think about it. His name in the Bible is recorded as Simon the Magician. His name is recorded as having an identity piece to him that has to do with black magic and anti-God. That's how history remembers him. You want to talk about somebody being far from God, being a priest? It's Simon. And Simon hears the message and has his life radically changed, as we will find next week, because of Philip. Because Philip goes, and he is faithful. He is obedient. And he is willing to do what God asks of him, even in the face of pain and uncertainty, because he knows there's purpose to it. Here's where it gets interesting, or more interesting, I could say. It was one point that we've been talking about that has two parts, make Christ known in others and in us. Well, the others we've kind of covered. It's kind of a fairly obvious, but I spelled it out for us anyway. What about in us? How is pain something that God uses in us? <laughs> Sorry. As a kid and growing up in youth group and in young adults and all that kind of stuff, I was very taught, as I read the Bible, again, to really immerse yourself in the story. 
that even if the story wasn't actually about you, there was something that applies to you, because all the Bible applies to all people all the time, always. And so I remember reading this story and remembering something. I remember asking myself this question. Couldn't Stephen have prayed for God to save him? At the very least, take the pain away. Again, Jesus, Stephen is one who is recorded as being full of the Holy Spirit, performing signs and wonders, full of wisdom and power and grace and truth. This man saw heaven break through on a regular basis, on a regular basis. He knew God could resurrect the dead. He knew God could move mountains. He knew God could do anything and everything to make a way to his people, to make his kingdom expand, to push back the darkness. Stephen knew this. He lived and walked in that truth. Couldn't Stephen have prayed for God to just save him? The Gospels actually even record for us a story where Jesus finds himself on a cliff. A metaphorical one, like a precarious situation, but also near a very physical cliff. And the crowds are surrounding him and they want to seize him and make him their king. That he would restore the nation of Israel and overthrow the Roman Empire. And scripture records for us that Jesus, supernaturally, just gets away. Now let me ask you something. I'm a fan of really kind of uh, imagery and think about this, as I'm sure you've noticed by this point. Imagine you were on a cliff. Imagine this, you know, this is the cliff. That's the canyon. That's death awaits you down there. <laughs> it's not good. You fall, you die. And you're here, and you're surrounded by thousands of people. How are you getting through? Honestly, think about it. How are you getting through? You're not. You're not. They're either going to push you over the cliff because there's way too many people pressing in on you, or they're going to seize you and do whatever they want with you. You're not getting away. And Stephen probably knows the story that Jesus absolutely got away like the world's greatest running back or something like that. He just jukes and jives and just gets around everybody and somehow just gets through thousands of people. And you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. I want to be able to do that in the grocery store and in Walmart and just get around people and get to where I need to go. I've tried. I've tried all my life. It hasn't worked yet, but I'm, I'm holding out hope. Stephen knows that God can make a way when there is no way. That's the whole gospel that God makes a way when there was no way. Couldn't Stephen have prayed for God to take away the pain? Yes. Does Stephen pray that? No. Why? Isn't there a scenario that exists where he can almost die or kind of die and the persecution starts to happen and the church still scatters but Stephen still saves his life? Isn't there a scenario where, where God wanted to work in him and achieve something through him could still happen but it didn't take his life? Does that scenario exist? Yes, it does. God can do it all. But Stephen doesn't ask because he knows the purpose of pain is one of God's greatest tools for Christ to be seen, revealed, and known in us. How do I know that? Stephen is one of a very small handful of people that you can literally count on one hand across the entire Bible, not named Jesus or God. So take, don't count God on the list for a second. We're talking about just humans. Stephen is on a very short list of human beings that is recorded to have experienced the full breath of the Trinity at once. Go back and read our passage. He says that when he's full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up and sees heaven opened up, and he sees God in all his glory, and he sees this Jesus, the Son of Man, standing on his right hand. He experiences the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in full glory. And not even something like death 
would ever take him away from that. Think about that for a second. We so desperately want God to draw near to us, and he does because he is good. But God drew near to Stephen and revealed himself to Stephen in a way that many of us labor for, but we're not there yet, and I hope one day we will be, whether on this side of heaven or in heaven. Stephen sees the full breath of the Trinity. The full breath of the Trinity. We've always wanted to see God. God, show yourself. God, move in my life. God, change me. God did it to Stephen. He saw heaven open. I have been, I've wanted to see what heaven looked like for all of my life, especially as a little kid. Aren't you curious what heaven would look like? Stephen saw it. He experienced the majesty and the beauty and the grandeur of God. And not even death. Not even people taking up large boulders and chucking them at his face until his neck broke would distract him from the goodness and the life and the hope and the power and the presence that he found in his Savior in that moment. That's a striking thing we need to catch on to, church. Because here's the reality. Pain is one of God's mightiest tools because pain brings us to the end of ourselves. It does. Think about the worst things you've ever gone through in your life. Think about the times you've hit rock bottom or almost hit rock bottom or thought you were on your way to rock bottom. What is left? Nothing. Who is left? Nothing. You can be loved. You can be supported. You can have people laboring with you, praying for you, showing up every day, entering into your pain and into your situation with you. And we pray that that is true. And if it's not, please tell us so that we can, we can have that change. But a lot of times, no matter how you are loved, no matter how you are cared for, we have tried everything, every machination, every plan, every drug, every distraction, every everything to somehow make sense of this thing that doesn't make sense called pain and to get it to change. And when we finally get to the bottom, we realize there's nothing left. There's no one left. What do we do? What do we do? Pain is something God wills mightily to say, let me clear out the distractions. Let me clear away the things that you think are such a priority. Let me clear away the things that you think should have such value and significance in your life. Let me clear away the things so that I can show you what you were made for. Let me clear away the things to show you what you were actually designed for. Let me clear away the things that I may show you who you were meant for. Because when you get down to the bottom, there's only one person there. There's only one person above all the death and all the pain and all the uncertainty and all the fear. There's only one person who has conquered it all. He has a name. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. You get to the bottom, you're only ever going to find Jesus. Now, what you do with him when you're there is a different story. But man, God will use pain in your life to show you him. To show you him. Isn't it any wonder that when Jesus was actually being crucified on the cross and he breathed his last, the Roman soldiers who were standing at his feet, who casted lots for his clothes, who put the crown of thorns on his head, one, scripture records for us, looks up and says, this man was the son of God. That's what it records for us. Go back and read the gospels. In that moment, all Jesus did was die. As a Roman soldier, that man would have seen death aplenty. But there was something that he recognized in that moment, seeing our Lord and Savior die a horrible death. There's something different about this man. 
And even in that awful pain, God uses the death of Jesus for even that one Roman soldier to realize, I am revealing to you me. Stephen sees and experiences the Trinity. Friends, we're coming to the end of this. This sermon, anyway. And so I have a couple questions to ask you. And these are real questions. These are questions I want you to ask yourself in this moment. Because I dare say, as we have a time of prayer at the end here, these questions will inform what God is stirring in your heart even now. Because some of us have never actually bothered to ask God to reveal to us the purpose of our pain. We've asked God to take it away. We've asked God to make it make sense. We've asked God to do something else with it. We've asked God to give us the strength to carry on. Not bad prayers. But have you ever asked God, God, what's the point? What's the point? Can this all be for nothing? Can this all be as Nietzsche would once summarize, that it's just an abyss? There's just nothing here. Or can there actually be a purpose to the pain that God wants to use in your life? Every other explanation of why pain may exist falls short outside of the one that Jesus gives us because everything else falls prey to pain. Every other explanation or every other salve you could put on pain eventually loses to pain. There's only one person who came and conquered it all, and he has a name, and it's Jesus. So if we're going to ask and find out what is the purpose for our pain, we're going to go to the one who conquered it all, and we're going to go to the one who Scripture shows us uses pain to show us him. It's a hard question to ask, but I want to encourage you. Would you ask? Have we been gripped by fear for too long? For some of you, that middle part where we talk about the church scattering and the church having uncertainty and the church not knowing what its future is going to look like is something that really resonates with you. And you don't want it to resonate, but if you're being honest with yourself, it does. For some of us, fear has gripped us for far too long. Some of us walk around hamstrung. This is no way to walk around. It's good for your calves, but no way to walk around. For some of us, we don't even realize how deep fear has set itself in our hearts and made itself home. Some of us don't even realize that a lot of what we do and a lot of how we respond is not even driven by things that we think for decide for ourselves. It's driven by fear. Do you know that neurobiologists have been able to do brain scans and realize that very often the way someone reacts to a situation is faster than any computer can measure? Think about that. Your brain tells you what to do before a computer can even recognize that your brain is doing something. It's instinct. For many of us, our instinct has been gripped by fear. We, re we respond out of fear before we even realize we're afraid. And we're so inoculated and we're so used to it, we don't even see it as fear anymore. We just say, that's just who I am. That's how I live my life. It's always been there. No, it hasn't. That's Satan. That's not from Jesus. That is not what he desires for his people. So how many of us have been gripped by fear for far too long and have let it dictate the circumstances of our life, have let it dictate the path of our lives, have let it dictate how we have a relationship with others and with Jesus? And some of us need to, this morning, 
stare that sucker in the face and say, in the name of Jesus, no more. Because that's what Stephen did, and that's what Philip did, and we stand here based upon the work that God did in their lives today. And some of us are going to find yourselves in this camp, and I can be honest, a lot of times this is where I find myself in this camp. Is the Holy Spirit, so Holy Spirit actually making us more like Jesus Christ, but we wish there was another way. We say, God, I love you. God, I, I want to serve you. God, I want to be with you. God, I, I want my plans to be your plans. I want my heart to be your heart. I want to see people the way you do. I want to be all in for you, Jesus, and I will sacrifice whatever it takes to be all in for you, Jesus. We are in love with him. We are committed. He has gripped our hearts because we know that he's, he's worthy of our hearts and that we were made for him. And a lot of times, we look at that and we go, that, I, I don't like that. I don't like what you want to do there. I don't like how you want to do it. Jesus, I love you, but I don't love the plan. Jesus, I love you, but I don't love what I'm feeling. Jesus, I love you, but can there please be another way? And this is one of the hardest things that God teaches us. This is one of the hardest things I've learned in my life. No. No. God is more concerned about you being with him and you being like him and you being used by him than he is about your comfort. Because believe it or not, friends, the lie that comfort is everything we need is shallow. I have mostly lived a comfortable life by God's grace. It hasn't been that grand. It hasn't been that full. It hasn't been that life-giving. And it only ever has been when Jesus is broken in. I remember um, uh, the jobs I've had before. I've had the pleasure and the privilege of working here. And I remember the times where I would be serving and ministering and doing things that seemed like it was in vain. It seemed like there was no point. It seemed like I was just taking two steps forward and 500,000 steps back. And I remember getting onto the other side of those events in my life, on the other side of those jobs in my life, and looking back and going, God, what was the point? That sucked. <laughs> that was horrible. That was, uh, friends, in, in a moment of honesty, there are times in my life that I don't even fully remember because a part of me has not let me remember because it was that painful. And I need Jesus to come and break through in those parts too. But I, I've looked at those other parts surrounding that, and I've gone, what was the point, Jesus? What was the point? That was horrible. And he helps me remember the students I've worked with along the way. He helps me remember the people that I have ministered to along the way. And please, hear me when I say this. This is not some humble brag on me. Tommy's the greatest pastor ever. No, without Jesus, I'm horrible. I really am. Just ask my wife. Without Jesus, I stink. But Jesus has shown me the ways when I have said, I will surrender to how you want to do it, God. I give you control, even if that takes a lot of pain. And Jesus reminds me there are mental health professionals today and nurses and ER doctors and social workers and youth pastors that live in this world preaching the goodness of our Jesus because I was willing to be used by God in the midst of pain. That's who he reminds me of when I don't want to be in pain anymore. Friends, I guarantee you, if you've ever surrendered to Jesus and let him work in you and through you, through the pain, you have those people too. This world looks more like the kingdom of God because of the Holy Spirit in 
you. So don't let the lie of comfort and don't let the lie of control deceive you any longer. Recognize that this is where we might be. God, I wish there was another way. And then when it's not another way, pray like Jesus prayed in the garden. Prayed like Mary prayed when she found out she would birth Jesus. God, not my will, but yours be done. Fill me. Help me to see you. Help me to work with you. Help me to be changed by you. That this pain is just a hindrance. Paul, who we'll talk about in the coming weeks, understood this well. Because when he asked God three times, take the thorn out of my side, God said no. But it is in your weakness that my power is made perfect. It is in your weakness that God's power is shown perfectly. Friends, I'm going to leave this up on the screen for a second. Honestly, ask yourself, all of them or one of them, wrestle with one of these today. Come up for prayer when we have a time of prayer at the end. About one of these things today, don't let the opportunity pass you by. Jesus, we love you. And we are so glad that you love us. What a wondrous love that would suffer all sources of pain, that would die a humiliating and gruesome death, that would take on flesh and walk amongst us just to be scorned by us. Oh, what love. That surpasses all knowledge and understanding. Oh, what love that makes sense of the nonsense. Oh, what love that changes us and changes the world. Oh, what love. And Jesus, it is to you and to this love that we cling to. Stephen's death is horrible. But wow, how he knew you. Wow, how he was used by you. Wow, how he trusted you that the purpose of pain in his life was going to exceed far beyond him. And the regions and the lost and the broken and the whole world would be blessed by the death of one man. Thank you that Stephen died. Thank you that he was willing to die because Jesus died. God, thank you for Philip who would do what must be done, who would serve in the face of fear and uncertainty, trusting that the purpose of pain in his life was to make Christ known to others. Oh, there is no greater purpose than that. Oh, there is no greatest purpose than that, that Christ would be known. Thank you for Stephen. Thank you that you bothered to put in that detail in Scripture that he saw you in full breath as much as a human being could experience you on this side of heaven. Thank you that he saw the Trinity and knew it was sweet and knew the power of your presence. God, would we be a people continually soaked and changed and transformed and living out of the power of your presence? God, this is a crazy prayer, but would you use pain to bring us into your presence? Yours is the better way. Yours is the right way. Yours is the all-powerful, life-changing way. Everything else fails us. Everything else is all for naught. Everything else for shallow. Everything else is a lie. Everything else never delivers on its promise. But you always have, and you always will. Because you have conquered death and sin and Satan and pain. And so you are the only one who is fit to use that thing which we would never want in our lives, in our lives to bring us to you. 
Jesus, we sang earlier, you are perfect in all of your ways. Teach us that again today, that you are perfect in all of your ways. Help us today to find freedom from fear. Help us today to trust you even when we want another way. Jesus, help us to ask the honest and hard questions that we have been putting off because it just seems too difficult. Jesus, help us meet with you today. Holy Spirit, help us to meet with you today. Change us. Change us. Don't let pain have the last say. Show us that there is purpose to it all. We ask, we, we beg, we proclaim, and we trust that you will make it so. Jesus' name, power, life, death, resurrection, and authority.